Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The number of airplanes in the sky is soaring, and so are the greenhouse gases they spew into the atmosphere. There are new jet engine technologies and cleaner fuels in the works, but aviation experts predict airplane emissions are still going to take off. They're talking about at the most 50% reductions in CO2 by evolutionary fiddling around with the current machines, and that will hardly account for the expected growth at air travel. Also, a baby doctor says the baby biz needs to be fixed. In our country, the obstetricians try to catch all the babies and get all the money and all the credit, and this is a very broken way to do things. The birth and a call for rebirth of midwifery. These stories and a bright idea for light bulbs this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Actually, it's 15,000 airplanes. That's the number of planes flying in the air at any given time, and that doesn't even include private jets. Government officials predict by 2025 the number of planes in the sky will soar threefold. That's bad news for the environment because more flights mean more global warming gases spewed into the atmosphere. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern reports cleaner fuels and aircraft are on the horizon, but like many flights, they may be delayed. The movie is Top Gun. Think Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer as young fighter pilots vying for stud status at the Navy's top pilot school. But whether we're talking about military jets or the 737 you take on business or to visit grandma, aircraft engines are a significant source of emissions. Dr. Dennis Bushnell, chief scientist for NASA's Langley Research Center, explains. Airplanes nominally produce, in terms of carbon dioxide, something like 3.5 to 4 to 5 percent of the total CO2. That's total global CO2 emissions. And to put that in perspective, in Europe, aircraft produce more CO2 emissions than refineries or steel plants. Bushnell says CO2 is only part of the way airline travel contributes to global warming. The water vapor from planes is also a big problem because it forms extra clouds, which trap heat. This is deposited at altitude where the predictions are that it's like three to five times more important in terms of a a global warming impact. Three to five times more than if these gases were released at ground level. Flying is also a big part of our personal carbon footprint. I wanted to see just how big, so I went to Al Gore's carbon footprint calculator on the web. Okay, so I probably drive about 2,000 miles a year, and my average heating bill is 75 to 100. It's been pretty cold lately. And now let's see, that puts me at uh, 9 tons of carbon emitted per year. So now let's see what happens if I fly. Let's say I take three short flights, or say two short flights... That's like flying to Florida, I guess, from Boston. And then we'll say one medium flight and then one long haul. Not that I can afford to go to Europe on a regular basis, but, you know, we'll just put it in there for fun. That boosted my carbon by two tons per year. 
So if I fly four times a year, my CO2 emissions go up by 22%. Airlines have improved fuel efficiency over the years. There are no international limits on CO2 emissions from planes, but Philippe Rochat, director of the Aviation Environment Department of IATA, the International Air Transport Association, says technological improvements, not government regulation or taxes, will make the industry cleaner. The technology is improving. Each new aircraft, new engine is an improvement uh, vis-à-vis the the previous one. People are already uh, working and considering this very long-term solution for aviation. NASA's Dennis Bushnell agrees major technological advancements are on the horizon, but he says the industry's not moving fast enough to get there. They're talking about at the most 50% reductions in CO2 by evolutionary fiddling around with the current machines, and that will hardly account for the expected growth in air travel. The number of tickets sold each year is set to double by 2025. And when it comes to the possibility of replacing jet fuel, which is actually kerosene, with biofuel, there's a bit of a jet lag. Ethanol, for example, doesn't pack as much energy as jet fuel, and biofuels tend to freeze at high altitudes. In the European Union, there's a move to limit aircraft emissions by adding the airline industry to its carbon trading plan by 2011. But the airline industry says only a global solution would avoid putting certain carriers at a disadvantage. We believe that... Since aviation is a global industry and since airlines fly all over the world, only a global emission trading scheme is able, let's say, to cover all flights and to avoid discrimination, to avoid distortion of competition between airlines. Aviation emissions is now a major topic of debate in Europe. Politicians there and beyond, from Tony Blair to Arnold Schwarzenegger, increasingly find themselves on the defensive over their frequent flights. Some airlines have publicly responded. British Airways, Virgin Atlantic, and EasyJet have committed to reducing their emissions and boosting fuel efficiency. But for some critics, that's not fast enough, and they're taking matters into their own hands. John Valentine is a stonemason from London. Last year, he started a web campaign called Flight Pledge to get people to cut back on the amount of time they spend in the air. They log into the website and they make a pledge. And in return for that, the computer sends back a little certificate which they can print off and put on their toilet wall or whatever they want to do with it. Valentine says he has more than 1,500 members, most of whom are British. Not an international campaign, perhaps, but it's a gradual process. Then you've nibbled away at it, and I think just everybody has to make a wee bit of an effort. This is why the website doesn't ask people to sort of forswear flying forever. It, it says, if you're just going to do two flights a year, then that's great. For most of us, flying is still an unavoidable part of the way we get around. But for John Valentine's next holiday in the south of France, he'll be taking the train. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. It's the job of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to assess the potential dangers that chemicals pose to people's reproductive health. But that job is largely being done on behalf of the Federal Center by a private consulting firm called Sciences International. Critics charge Sciences International's federal contract creates a blatant conflict of interest. That's because many of Sciences International's private clients produce chemicals the company reviews for the government. One of the chemicals they're now reviewing in a draft report is widely used in many consumer products. It's called bisphenol A, or BPA, and its safety is very controversial. Marla Cohn is covering the story for the L.A. Times and joins us to help sort through the details. Thanks, Marla. Thank you. 
You write that since 1998, Sciences International has been running this Center for the Evaluation of Risk to Human Reproduction, and you say that their role is very unusual. How so? Well, it's not unusual for a federal agency to have private contractors such as Sciences International, but it seems that what is unusual in this case is to the extent of, of how much they do for this center. The center is the, uh, the agency that determines which chemicals pose a threat to human health, to human reproductive health. But what happens is that Sciences International is the first step. Its consultants write the, the first drafts of these reports. They collect all the data on a chemical and they put it into a report and then the scientific review panel looks it over and makes conclusions. Sciences International also has what the center calls an administrative role at the center. But it also has in its capacity as a private consulting company some of the companies that it's doing these reports on, Dow, DuPont, Union Carbide. Yes, I I have seen a client list of Sciences International. On its website, it says that about half of its clients are private, and the other ones are government agencies. But many of the chemicals that those companies produce are the same ones that it's doing these reviews for the government. Right. On that list of clients was Dow Chemical Company and BASF, and they are both um, producers or manufacturers of um, BPA, the chemical that they are now reviewing. Hmm. What about the conflict of interest or the apparent conflict of interest? Is anybody raising eyebrows about that? Well, the National Toxicology Program, which runs this reproductive health center, is concerned. They've mounted an investigation, and they say they take the allegations of conflict of interest very seriously. They are now looking to see what types of policies the National Institutes of Health has for contractors. They're not sure if there is a conflict of interest policy, and if there is, whether it would apply to Sciences International. The advocacy group, the Environmental Working Group, got a copy of a letter going back to 1999 from SI to R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco maker, and they want to represent the tobacco company before the EPA over regulating a pesticide. And basically, Sciences International is boasting about how they, well, they've got a unique role. They're both as a government contractor and a private firm and how they can get the job done. Right. They were telling the tobacco company that what they can offer and that many other consulting companies cannot offer on environmental issues is that they work for government. They work for these various agencies, so they know what the agencies want. Well, now they're, they're issuing a report about this very contentious chemical, this widely used chemical. It's called bisphenol A. And, and the government studies have showed that it has an effect, that it mimics estrogen. It can disrupt the delicate endocrine system. Yet none of the industry studies indicate an effect. Do you know what their draft report suggests? Well, their draft report, the one that was initially written by Sciences International, does not reach any conclusions. It does not say this is, this is a reproductive toxin or this is not. What it does is it cites about 500 different studies, and it gives a little bit of information about each. But some of the scientists I've talked to and Environmental Working Group have gone through it, and they say that what it does, it, it omits some data, it downplays some government studies at the same time as it gives a, a lot of information about some industry studies, that it has inaccuracies. So they say it's sort of subtle what they think Sciences International did with the draft of its report. Well, what happens now to that report? 
That report, the panel met for two and a half days, but did not reach a conclusion. And I was told because of the extent and complexity of the data that it is taking more time. The report on, on how serious the risk is from BPA will be out in two or three months. I called Sciences International, and they you know, didn't want to speak to me. They referred me to the uh, NIH. Right, and that's what they did for me, too. They have refused to talk about it. They want the agencies to deal with that. But the agencies, as I said now, are, are mounting an investigation. They said that they are concerned about the industry ties, but they do not know if there is, first of all, a conflict of interest policy that this would apply to. I don't know if there's any consultants out there that just work for government and don't take any industry money. Well, Marla, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Marla Cohn is an environmental reporter for the L.A. Times. Senator Barbara Boxer and Representative Henry Waxman are looking into the potential conflicts of interest by Sciences International. Birthing the baby business, an obstetrician rethinks his profession. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In the spirit of, if you can't beat them, join them, increasingly large U.S. companies are cooperating with environmental groups on controversial projects. The latest is the $38 billion deal to acquire Texas energy company TXU. The firms mounting the buyout have teamed up with Natural Resources Defense Council and Environmental Defense and agreed to cut back on the number of coal-burning power plants the company wants to build from 11 to 3. But not all environmental groups are buying into the deal. Jennifer Krill is director of Rainforest Action Network's climate change campaign, and she joins us from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Jennifer, glad you're here. Thanks so much. So what's uh, your problem with the TXU deal? Well, we think, honestly, that three plants are three coal-fired power plants too many. We're thrilled. Believe me, we're thrilled to see that eight plants are now off the table. The challenge for all of us now is to get rid of those remaining three power plants. Mm -hmm. And how would you propose doing that? I mean, these other environmental groups seem satisfied with the three. Our primary focus at Rainforest Action Network is to get Wall Street to stop funding these proposals. The original TXU plan included an $11 billion syndicated loan from a number of Wall Street firms. And the message that we're sending to Wall Street investors now, you know, banks like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, these banks hold the purse strings for the coal-fired power plants that are being proposed in the United States today. We're telling Wall Street, no new coal. It's time for Wall Street to write a new plan for America's energy future. Well, what does Rainforest Action Network plan to do if they do, in fact, get these three coal power plants built? Well, I think there's a lot of campaigning that's going to take place between now and, and that happening. And I think we've got a good chance of stopping those three power plants. Our focus is Wall Street. What we need is a transition to in investments in energy efficiency, solar, and wind power. 
Ironically, TXU is one of the top wind retailers in Texas, and in fact, in the entire country. So here with TXU, you have a company that is both the problem and the solution. We need a little bit more of that solution. This is the 21st century. We can't afford to keep building big boxes of coal to meet our energy needs. It's time to transition towards meeting our future energy needs with energy efficiency and renewables. You know, Jennifer, wind is not without its opponents and not without its problems. Uh, there was, what, 5,000 megawatts of installed wind power in Texas. This Oak Grove coal plant will produce 1,750 megawatts. You're going to need thousands of more wind turbines to replace that. The alternative to wind, to be clear, is 22 million tons of CO2 emissions annually, tons of annual emissions of mercury, local air pollutants, SOx, NOx, health problems for the people who live around those coal power plants. If you were to add all of the externalized cost of these coal-fired power plants, it would make wind seem much more appealing. And in Texas in particular, it has been noted by energy experts from around the world, there's a tremendous amount of untapped wind power potential. There's also untapped solar potential. And what's more, there's tremendous opportunity for energy efficiency. And you know what? Energy efficiency saves ratepayers money. And that's part of the reason why so many Texans are opposing these coal-fired power plants. And in fact, so many Texans oppose new coal in general. Jennifer, this seems to be a a watershed both in um, the environmental movement and uh, in the Wall Street finance uh, backing of companies. We think it is a watershed moment. We think that in 2007, we're seeing the first nail in big coal's coffin. Jennifer, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Jennifer Krill directs Rainforest Action Network's climate change campaign. We also spoke with the Sierra Club about the TXU deal. You can hear their perspective. Go to our website, LOE.org. In 1857, French physicist Alexander Becquerel came up with the bright idea of the fluorescent bulb. And today, they're the hottest thing in lighting, or actually the coolest. Unlike incandescent bulbs, which generate a lot of heat and waste energy, The latest version of fluorescent bulbs, those compact, spirally-looking ones, are highly efficient. They can last 15 times longer than an incandescent bulb and generate the same amount of light using just a fifth of the energy. That's why large companies and environmental groups are championing the cool-burning bulbs. Replace just a few bulbs in your house with compact fluorescents, and you'll save money every month, every year. There's just one problem with compact fluorescent bulbs. They contain mercury, which is toxic. And when it winds up in the food chain, can cause damage to our brain, spinal cord, kidneys, and liver. Joining me in the studio is Terry Goldberg. She's deputy director of the Northeast Waste Management Officials Association. Terry, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. There's just a small amount of mercury in these compact fluorescent lights, right? That's correct. The amount will depend on the wattage of the bulb and the size of the bulb. So there's more mercury in larger bulbs at higher wattages. Now, until recently, most of the fluorescent lights we've used have been in industrial places, you know, these long, thin ones. That's right. Linear, they're called linear fluorescent lamps. Typically, you see the four-foot ones in fixtures in all office buildings now are lighted by fluorescent lamps, or you see them in hospitals, schools, as you said, industrial locations, everywhere. They're all over the place. Now these bulbs, these little spiral bulbs, are winding up 
everywhere, and they're almost as cheap as regular incandescent bulbs. That's right. They're becoming much more accessible to the consumer. Households are beginning to purchase them more and more because the price has come down and because of the energy efficiency advantages that they have. I know that according to some industry groups, there are about 700 million of these bulbs being sold, and only a small fraction are actually being recycled for the mercury content. Yes, my understanding from the data that we've seen, we're seeing recycling rates for fluorescent lamps on the order of 20-25% of the lamps are being recycled in the U.S. currently. Most of those, as, as I understand it, are the linear fluorescent lamps. Those are the more widespread lamps that you see. And from a regulatory point of view, there's no regulations related to waste generated by households, except on a local jurisdiction or state jurisdiction. So the vast majority of fluorescent lamps are used in commercial or industrial settings. And so the target has been to increase recycling by those entities. So what does the average person do? They go to the store with the best of green intentions. They buy some of these curly Q little bulbs, and they feel good about it. And then comes time to get rid of them. It's not okay just to toss them in the trash? Legally, in most jurisdictions, you can throw them in the trash if you're in a household setting. Is that a kind of an ecological no-no, though? Yes. We recommend that people recycle these bulbs. And where would I bring my bulbs? I mean, that's a little onerous. You know, I've got to accumulate my bulbs, put them someplace, remember that those are the used bulbs as mm-hmm. opposed to those are the new bulbs. And- that's true. It is a burden on consumers and residents. And it depends on where you live, what you can do with them. In locations where you have, say, household hazardous waste collection programs, some of those programs take these lamps back, or you might be able to do it through, say, a Department of Public Works if they collect household hazardous waste. But it's only in very few locations where the retailer is now involved in taking back these fluorescent lamps, like you have with the bottle bills. So, for example, in Vermont, we're now seeing True Value hardware stores, Ace hardware stores, beginning to provide this as a service to their customers. But we haven't yet seen that with Walmart or Home Depot or other large retailers of these products. It's a real patchwork. That's right. And that's a huge challenge. Well, Walmart really is pushing these bulbs. They want to sell one compact fluorescent bulb to each one of their 100 million customers this coming year. That's right. And as I understand it, there's beginning to be discussions with Walmart about this problem for their customers of what to do with these bulbs when they burn out. Is there really a benefit, after all is said and done, of using compact fluorescent bulbs as opposed to incandescent bulbs? I'm thinking of the mercury in the environment because coal-powered plants produce mercury. That's right. Coal-fired power plants emit mercury because there's trace amounts of mercury in the coal and they're burning millions of tons of coal, and that gets released to the atmosphere. And I guess I would rather than see it as one or the other, we really want to see people doing both. We want to see people buying and using energy-efficient lighting, and we want to see them be able to manage the lamps at the end of life correctly. Um, We want to see them recycle these things so that both sources of mercury are being reduced. And I think as customers, we need to begin to more and more engage our local authorities, state authorities, and at the federal level in this conversation about expanding the recycling and collection of these products at the end of their life. Well, Terry Goldberg, thank you very much for coming in. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Terry Goldberg is Deputy Director of the Northeast Waste Management Officials Association. 
For most of his career, Dr. Marsden Wagner was your typical American OBGYN, a baby doctor, delivering his share of the 4 million babies that are born each year in the United States. 99% of those births take place in hospitals. That's the way it should be, thought Dr. Wagner, until he became the director of Women and Children's Health at the World Health Organization and began traveling to places where midwives do the job. What he saw changed his life. It was a shock beyond belief because that woman, when she got uh, near birth, she started yelling. And she said to the midwife and to me and uh, the family and everybody, stand back. I'm going to have this baby. And she did. And what I actually witnessed for the first time in my life was a woman in her full power. And it scared me to death. The idea that midwives could do in the home what doctors did in hospitals, only cheaper and better in terms of the health of babies and moms, led Dr. Marsden Wagner to rethink his profession and write the book Born in the USA, How a Broken Maternity System Must Be Fixed to Put Women and Children First. It's important to know that midwifery is a profession that goes back into antiquity. The word midwife comes from the ancient English uh, for with the woman. In, in Danish, it is your more, which means earth mother. And there have always been women at birth. Birth was part of the women's world. I got to tell you, I'm a little bit um, hesitant about this interview because here we are, two men talking about women, maternity and, and birth. Well, I think that's a very legitimate concern. And indeed, until about 250 years ago, there were never any men at the birth. And indeed, one of the best-known early obstetricians uh, in uh, Great Britain uh, went to birth uh, cross-dressed as a woman. Well, I did read your book with great interest. And Basically, what I understand you to be saying is that we've got a broken system, that the maternity system in the United States, the way kids are born here, is broken. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the obstetric profession 100 years ago decided to drive out the midwives because they were taking their patients and they wanted the field to themselves. So they started campaigns in many states, witch hunts essentially, to claim that midwives don't know what they're doing and they're killing babies and so forth. And they succeeded in driving midwifery out of our country. They didn't do that in any other country and in every country in the world except ours, highly trained midwives catch uh, the vast majority of babies except for the 10 or 15% where there's a serious medical problem. But in our country, the obstetricians uh, try to catch all the babies and get all the money and all the credit. And this is a very broken way to do things. We have good scientific data showing that doing it this way means many more dead women and many more dead babies. So what you're saying is that they've turned the maternity system into a medical system. Exactly. It's turning birth into a surgical procedure. And since obstetricians are also gynecologists, it means they're trained as surgeons. So they do it as a surgical procedure. But uh, it is Mickey Mouse, and it has nothing to do with the safety of that birth. Well, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of surgical procedures during birth, the C-section. Uh, but you write, basically, it stands for convenience. 
It's for the convenience of the doctors. Well, you see, the problem for the busy obstetrician gynecologist is that he or she has far too much to do in catching all the babies and doing all the family planning and doing all of the gynecological surgery. Their plate is overflowing. And the worst thing on their plate is normal birth because it takes, on average, 12 or more hours, and it happens 24-7. So it is a nightmare, and yet it is their primary source of income. So they're not going to give it up. So what they've got to do is to bring it under control. Now, there are two ways that uh, the obstetrician can bring control into childbirth. One is to artificially start the labor at a time that is convenient to the doctor and the hospital. And this is done through induction of labor with very powerful drugs. Now, the second way that you can bring control into this is to do a cesarean section instead of having a normal birth. Because a cesarean section takes 20 minutes, not 12 hours, and I can schedule it. And As a matter of fact, uh, we do twice as many cesareans in this country as should be done. It is more dangerous for the woman, and it is more dangerous for the baby. One of the drugs that's used to induce labor was something called Cytotec, and you talk about it in the book. The amazing thing about Cytotec is that it is on the market only to treat stomach ulcers in adults. And it says on the bottle and that this should never be used on pregnant and birthing women. And in fact, there's a picture on the bottle of a silhouette of a pregnant woman with a line through it. And yet they use this to induce labor. And the the result is that this drug caused such violent contractions of the uterus that the baby can't get enough oxygen because the only time a baby gets oxygen during labor is in between contractions. But if you go to the website of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which I did, they say, yes, we have a crisis in the United States in terms of OBGYN and birthing. The fact is we don't have enough OBGYNs and that docs are starting to get out of the business because they're afraid of being sued because it's the riskiest of all the specialties in terms of lawsuits. Well, there is a great deal of litigation against obstetricians in our country. And the obstetricians are screaming and screaming, no, no, no. And yet, why is there all of this litigation? It's because when the woman, pregnant woman comes to the obstetrician, basically the obstetrician is saying, you come to me and all my expertise and the beautiful hospital with all their machinery, and we will guarantee you a a beautiful, perfect baby. Well, if you play God, you get blamed for the natural disasters. You're very passionate, Dr. Wagner. Um, Are you optimistic? Yes, I am optimistic. And I'm optimistic because I believe Abe Lincoln was right. You can't fool all the people all the time. The American public is going to wake up and discover uh, 
For example, that the obstetricians are absent and discover that we're not number one in the world when it comes to maternity care and discover that we're paying twice as much as we need to for the maternity care and discover that they are being deprived of this wonderful professional called a midwife and so forth, and they are going to wake up. Well, Dr. Wagner, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, sir. Dr. Marsden Wagner's new book is called Born in the USA, How a Broken Maternity System Must Be Fixed to Put Women and Children First. Just ahead, red light, green light, one, two, three. Arizona makes highway crosswalks for wildlife. Take a walk on the wild side and keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from you, our listeners, and from member stations. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, it sounds a little cuckoo. A painting brings music to the ears of bird scientists. But first, we begin a new series on Living on Earth called Home Ground. say you know a place, I mean really know a place, until you can describe the landscape, the pattern of folds and features that make a place unique. Learning to describe a landscape is part of making it our own, claiming it as a place we care about. Nature writer Barry Lopez has devoted his life to describing landscapes in intimate detail. So he was surprised to find not long ago that no one had ever published a dictionary of American landscape terms. So Lopez and fellow writer Deborah Gwartney set out to do just that. They asked 45 other writers to craft accurate but lyrical definitions of landscape features they know and love, ranging from the commonplace, like field and desert, to the obscure, like Ganderbrush, Hogback Ridge, and Witness Tree. The result is a new collection called Homeground, Language for an American Landscape. And over the next few months, we'll feature a series of entries from the book read by the authors. We begin this week with Oregon writer John Daniel, reading his definition of one of the signature landscape features of his part of the country, Cascade. Cascade. Mountain streams like to descend in stair-stepped series of short falls and brief pools. In these cascades, water alternates between two energy states, much like air shifting between super and subsonic flow. The white water of the falls is the fluvial equivalent of a sonic boom. Cascade is used more broadly to mean a rocky stretch of white water, less steep than a waterfall, but steeper than a rapid. The cascades of the Columbia River, formed several centuries ago when a massive slide filled the channel in the mid-Columbia Gorge, presented Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery with a three-mile stretch of chutes and falls boiling in a most horrible manner, according to William Clark's journal. Rafting or boating the gorge was the last leg of the Oregon Trail for many early immigrants. Some lost all they owned to the Cascades, and some lost their lives. Now drowned in slack water behind Bonneville Dam, this reach of river gave the Cascade Range its name. John Daniel lives and writes in the hills just outside of Eugene, Oregon. His definition of cascade is included in the new book, Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. 
edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney. In the coming weeks, we'll hear other entries from the book, including definitions of such landscape features as Blind Creek, Kiss Tank, and Anchor Ice. Arizona is the fastest-growing state in the country. More people means more of everything, including encounters between humans and wildlife. In Payson, a small town in northern Arizona, state officials have created an innovative way to reduce collisions between cars and animals. Arizona Public Radio's Jillian Ferris-Cole reports. It can be an upsetting experience to run over a squirrel as it skitters off the road. But it's a different experience altogether when a 600-pound elk comes crashing through your windshield. I'd equate it to hitting a horse, I guess. That's Bob Tuso, a hydrogeologist from Flagstaff. He hit and killed an elk last year, driving 75 miles an hour. Tuso says she was as big as his Subaru. Her body hit about at the top of the windshield where the roof begins and smashed the whole roof in. If you see pictures of the car, it looks like somebody got totally flattened in there. It's... uh, you know, they had to cut off the roof, put a new roof on, put a new windshield on, and all that, a new hood. I still find uh, little pieces of elk or elk hair in the car, in the upholstery, whatever, when, I, when I'm cleaning it out. Tuso is one of 700 Arizona drivers last year who reported having collisions with large wild animals. The State Department of Transportation says wildlife vehicle accidents are on the rise. That's because there are more drivers on the road and because new highways are often built on top of long-existing animal trails. Highway 260 outside of Payson has a particularly high accident rate. Like many Arizona highways, it has only two lanes and winds through mountainous terrain with plenty of blind corners and sheer drop-offs. Researchers here are conducting an experiment to teach drivers and animals to essentially look both ways. On this cold morning, Jay Vagalados stands on the side of Highway 260 in front of an open metal shed full of computers. Basically, what we have up there is two thermal cameras, which are aimed at the detection zone. We don't want squirrels setting them off. We kind of want large, hot objects. So that would be like humans, elk, deer, possibly even maybe like a mountain lion would set it off. But that's a good thing, too. Vagalados designed the software for the wildlife crosswalk. The animals are routed to the crossing by a series of low-voltage electrified fences. Then the computers send a real-time warning to drivers that large animals are close by. What it does is it'll send a signal to a radio, fires off the flashers, sends another radio signal to the message boards, which fire off a message that say, elk detected, slow down. Yellow flashing lights force a driver's immediate attention to the road. Vagalados believes the system is much more effective than roadside signs like those warning drivers to watch for elk for the next 40 miles. It's almost like a traffic jam will sometimes back up or, you know, the, the first car will slow down and everybody will slow down behind him. And you can see them kind of just creep past the crossing, which is, which is good. The Arizona Game and Fish Department is pleased with the results. Norris Dodd is project coordinator. And lo and behold, in the year after they fenced, the collision rate went down 83%. So really the net result is we're making not only a highway that's better for people and safer, but better for animals. And 11 new underpasses give the animals additional places to cross the highway. But Dodd says the success of the project ultimately depends on drivers. In one two-day period, we had 136 vehicles going over 105 miles an hour. And this is in an area posted 55 miles per hour. 
sometimes I, I kind of promote the notion that we ought to leave all the dead animals alongside the road so people will get the visual clue that maybe they need to slow down. Much of the data for the project is collected by the animals themselves. Dodd has trapped more than 100 elk and outfitted them with GPS data collection collars. The collars track the elk's migration patterns, including how many times they cross or even come close to the highway. This morning, Dodd finds a female yearling in one of the traps. He and his crew blindfold her and put on her thick necklace. Just sit right there and hold that until we're ready to go. Okay. She won't hurt you. Pull that blindfold off, Michelle. Pull the blindfold. I'm good. The elk will wear the collar for 22 months when a preset explosive charge will blow it off her. Game and fish researchers will use the data to continue work on this highway and elsewhere in Arizona. Canada and Michigan are conducting similar experiments. For Living on Earth, I'm Jillian Ferris-Cole in Payson, Arizona. The devastating earthquake that recently struck Indonesia is only the latest in a long list of disasters to hit the region. In 2004, a tsunami killed hundreds of thousands of people. And since then, the Asian archipelago has been plagued with floods, volcanic eruptions, landslides, dengue fever, and bird flu. But amid all the grim news is one small but noteworthy event. A team of biologists on the island of Sumatra in Indonesia have recorded for the very first time the call of one of the world's rarest and most secretive birds, the Sumatran ground cuckoo. Joining me is Peter Klein, Assistant Director of the Asia Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society. Hi, Peter. Hi, Bruce. This bird was thought to be extinct in 1916, and then one was found in 1998. How did your scientists come across the Sumatran ground cuckoo? The rediscovery of the bird in 1998 gave us a sense that this bird could still be extant. So we took a painting of the bird and went around to all the different hunters in various villages around Bukit Barisan Selatan National Park. And we showed them this painting and said, if you come across this bird in any of your mammal traps or pheasant traps, give us a call, and here's the hotline number. And after about a year of of searching, one of them finally did. So you got the bird. Yeah, we got the bird. It was uh, early in January of this year. Sure enough, basically a hunter from the northern part of Bukit Barisan Selatan National Park called up one of our biologists, Uh, His name is Firdas Rahman, and Daus instantly got on a bus and traveled for eight hours to this uh, really remote village, and uh, sure enough, there it was. And he identified it right away? Oh, yes. It's very distinctive looking, I guess, huh? It's very distinctive. It's about a foot and a half long. It's got a dark iridescent green back, sort of a rufous red barred underbelly, and it's got a beautiful blue and purple bear patch around the eye. And he spent the night right next to the bird with his cell phone recorder in hand, hoping to get a recording of the call. And that was actually the first call that we got. Well, I understand we have uh, gotten from you a, a copy of this call. Let's listen to it, okay? Okay. Well, it's not exactly music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> kind of laugh at the song because, uh, you know, it's, it's basically not been known for, well, 150 years. It finally breaks its silence 
and it sounds a bit like a chicken running scared or something, and uh, that makes me laugh. Well, why do you want the sounds of the uh, Sumatran cuckoo in any event? Well, for a variety of reasons. First, because it's never been noted before, so this is, of course, new information to science, which is great. Um, second, we are hopeful that we will be able to use this call to go out into the woods, play it out there, and we hope that other birds will respond to this call. And this is, this is exactly what's happened with a sister species called the Bornean ground cuckoo. Ornithologists went out and used that recording. The birds would respond to that call. So then they, they got a much better sense for the distribution of the uh, Bornean ground cuckoo. Peter, what caused um, this bird to be near extinct? I think it's a bit premature to call it nearly extinct. It's very, very secretive bird and probably a very rare bird. This bird is thought to be found in mountain forests of Sumatra, and those are under threat because of conversion to coffee plantations. And this bird may also be found in lowland forests. We're not sure of that. We're certainly hoping to find out. The lowland forest of Sumatra is under tremendous threat to conversion to palm oil plantations. Peter, before I say bye to you, let's listen to the uh, Sumatran uh, ground cuckoo one last time. Boy, that is some sound, isn't it? It really fills us with a lot of hope and pride, actually. Really? Why is that? Well, you know, the Bornean ground cuckoo story is a, a pretty good parallel, and the song really did enable people to go out there and find out quite a bit more about it. And so we're, we're hopeful that this is going to be the, the case here, too, that there are going to be quite a bit more of the birds than we thought, and hopefully we can show that they're not actually critically endangered. That's certainly what we hope so. Peter Klein is assistant director of the Asia program at the Wildlife Conservation Society, which recorded the song of the rare Sumatran ground cuckoo. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. The Chang Tang is a rolling upland that stretches across the northern part of the Tibetan Plateau in China. It's one of the least known places on Earth, a sweeping wilderness 16,000 feet high, punctuated with glacial peaks. Field biologist George Scholler has been studying this region for more than 20 years. You might be familiar with his world-famous research on mountain gorillas of Central Africa, the lions of the Serengeti, the snow leopards of Nepal, and the pandas of Bolong, China. Now 73, the intrepid Dr. Scholler's most recent expedition took him to the Changtang again, this time in search of another creature, the Tibetan antelope, or chiru. Chiru are beautiful. The males have black faces, a light tan coat, and horns that rise straight up for two feet. They weigh about 90 pounds as compared to the females, which weigh around 60 pounds and are hornless. China has made them a mascot for the 2008 Olympics. But Chiru have one disadvantage. They have the finest wool in the world. During the late 1980s and 1990s, they were mass slaughtered by poachers who sold the wool to India to make chateau shawls for the world's luxury market. Fortunately, this illegal trade has now been much reduced. Indeed, in some areas, Chiru seemed to be on the increase again. But I wondered, how many Chiru and other species remained in the most desolate northern part of the region in winter? It was a gap in knowledge that I was eager to fill. The last time anyone crossed the Changtang from west to east was in 1896, and that was in summer. 
This winter, our team of 14 Tibetan and Han Chinese and I made a great traverse of the region. We drove a thousand miles cross-country without seeing another person. It was cold, getting down to 25 below zero at night, and a fierce wind often swept over the landscape. But in this seemingly barren country, we were surprised by how much wildlife we encountered and were delighted to count about 8,000 chiru. It was a hopeful sign for the future. We also saw a 1,000 wild yaks, an animal much more rare than a chiru. We recorded 22 wolves. Several had probably never seen a person before. They showed little fear, and one even visited camp. After crossing this huge uninhabited area, we continued eastward into a region occupied by Tibetan nomads and their livestock. Wildlife was scarcer there, and some rangelands were degraded by overgrazing. We talked about wildlife and conservation with the nomads in their homes and at community gatherings. It was tremendously heartening for me to learn that several communities have begun to protect wildlife and rangelands on their own initiative. They have even set aside areas for wildlife in which grazing of livestock is forbidden. The teaching of their Buddhist religion, combined with a keen ecological insight, has helped these people realize that their future, their livelihood, depends on treating this land with respect and compassion. One nomad told me, a rangeland without animals would not be a healthy one. In such grassroots effort lie the future of conservation, not just on a Tibetan plateau, but everywhere. Dr. George Scholler's research trip was funded by the National Geographic Society and the Wildlife Conservation Society. To see photos of his expedition to the Changtang, including one of the Tibetan antelope, trek to our website, loe.org. Hungry and hairy and clearing out the fridge. According to a recent newspaper headline in South Africa, adventurous baboons are getting too close for comfort. They're not domestic animals. It's not like having a cat or a dog. A baboon is a wild animal, and he, and he lives accordingly. And if you get in his way, if you get in the way, and if you corner a, a big male, he's going to go for you. <laughs> Battling baboons on the streets of Cape Town, next week on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vision. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. 
Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Educational Foundation of America, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.